Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network, and I just want to warn listeners that there's a slight echo in some of this interview. But don't be alarmed. The interview is very listenable and worth listening to. Hi there. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently had the pleasure of talking with Volker Scheid and Hugh McPherson, who are the two editors of a recently published volume, Integrating East Asian Medicine into Contemporary Healthcare, that just came out this year in 2012. Now, this is a, this is a volume that's trying, I think successfully, to begin more of a, a organic and coherent conversation between at least two fields, uh, one of which we can think of as STS, science technology, and society broadly defined, and the other um, we can think of, again, broadly defined as the study and practice of East Asian medicine. And, the, and East Asian medicine here is defined um, for the purpose of the volume as including, but not limited to, uh, China, Japan, Korea, and Vietnam. The book does this through a series of essays um, which each focus on a particular problem or a particular case study um, that are interspersed with or sort of punctuated by vignettes. Um, these are short vignettes by um, many, many different authors that look at everything from um, local practices of medicine and health in different, very specific um, local areas. Um, they look at particular books sometimes or ideas that the authors um, find compelling or useful or interesting to think through the kinds of questions and the kinds of problems that emerge when you try to bring um, discourse of or discourses of East Asian medicine together with um, a broader set of discourses on the practice and study of science. Um, we had a really interesting conversation about not just the content of the volume, the goals of the volume, this, this larger set of issues that the volume is hoping to speak to, but also the mechanics and the structure of the kinds of sustained interactions that bring about a successful volume like this. So I hope you enjoy the interview. One thing that I'll mention is that in the last 20 minutes or so, um, you'll hear quite a bit of feedback. Now, that sometimes happens when um, not all members of a conversation have headphones on, and that's, I think, what happened um, here. We did our best to try to um, stop and start and mitigate the issue, but it still persisted. And what I'll say is persevere, um, because it's a really interesting conversation, and it's worth um, getting through. And uh, apologies for the feedback at the end, but it's uh, really interesting stuff, so I hope you enjoy Hello, Volker. Hello, Hugh. Hello. Hello there. So we're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Volker Scheid and Hugh McPherson about a book they recently co-edited and published called Integrating East Asian Medicine into Contemporary Healthcare, and that just came out in 2012. Now, this is an incredibly ambitious project in its aims and in its execution. It aims not just 
to provide critique or provide um, sort of information on contemporary healthcare and its engagement with East Asian medicine, but it also aims to provide, and I think succeeds in this, uh, concrete suggestions for how to shape a vast array of interdisciplinary discourses and practices about East Asian medical practice and its negotiation with contemporary medicine and medical practice. So thank you so much, Hugh and Folker for being with us today and for making the time to talk up with us about this fascinating volume. Thank you for inviting us. Oh, of course. So um, Folker and Hugh, and maybe we'll start with Folker just to um, get things started. Could you start us off a little bit um, by saying a, a little bit about how what brought you to this field in the first place? Let's sort of lay the foundation. Why Chinese medicine and what brought you to an interest in Chinese medical history and Chinese medical practice? Um, well, I started off as a Chinese medical practitioner, really, in uh, about 30 years ago. And um, very quickly after having uh, become a practitioner, um, th th this was a time where um, very few Chinese medical textbooks were available in, in English. Um, but you had a competing field of uh, many different uh practitioners or, or, or traditions within Chinese medicine claiming to um, be the speakers uh, of, of some kind of authentic Chinese medicine. Um, it, it became quite clear to me, uh, both through that and also through my own practice, uh, that, that, that Chinese medicine was maybe something different than I had been taught at college, mm -hmm. that it involved... Uh, many more complex translations from, from, from the past to the present and from, you know, from Asia via many different routes to the West, and the different routes that produce different results. Mm -hmm. and, um, and also, um, this, this might not be very, very <laughs> nice to some of the Chinese medicine practitioners, but I also found um, I, I needed some some more intellectual stimulation than I was getting at that time in that field. Mm -hmm. So I went back to university and, uh, and via a circuitous route, I arrived in science and technology studies and medical anthropology. And ever since I've been trying to marry those two fields, um, do something, you know, stay practically engaged with Chinese medicine. But I, I also think that oh, I have, have come to learn that science studies, anthropology, medical history, and I'm not really in, in any one of those disciplines, but try to be in all of them, uh, can, can also help us to, can, can help practitioners to understand better what they are doing and, and, and how they might uh, shape their, their own practices, while vice versa. I think um, being a practitioner who actually is not afraid to uh, to look at the the text as and, and engage with with texts and practices, um, you know, in, in in a very concrete way. That that I think I would hope it can add a dimension to to science studies, anthropology, etc. That otherwise um, people shy away from because it's so unfamiliar and uh, and often difficult. So, Hugh, what brought you into the field? Well, I, I have a, a background uh, which is rather mixed. In, I started out doing a PhD in mathematics, and 
reacted really quite strongly against the academic environment of uh, of the sort of hard sciences and took up via a circuitous route um, the practice of acupuncture. I trained 30 years ago, and I've been in practice as an acupuncturist um, since then. But uh, being a restless sort of person, um, I also soon, um, not soon, after a while, took up um, the, uh, teaching acupuncture and did that for 10 years and then moved on to research and became an independent researcher for six years, looking at the evidence base and looking at how to improve the evidence. Because when we work in the, the acupuncture clinic, we see re- quite good results a lot of the time. But when you look at the literature, the scientific literature, the result, you know, the averages across um, the, the research literature show that things don't work as well as one experiences in the clinic. So research became a, a, an interest of mine to figure out why is, why is this gap between what we see in the clinic and what the, the science tells us there and, and how can we close that gap? And so um, I was fortunate enough to get a, a postdoctorate uh, at the, my local university, University of York, which turned out to be, um, I subsequently discovered, one of the bastions of evidence-based medicine. So my, my time at the university, I've been there nine years now, has been, if anything, bridging this sort of gap between practice and evidence-based medicine and trying to make uh, more sense, both from the point of view of the practitioner, how evidence-based medicine can actually offer something, but also working um, with the, the evidence base in a way trying to make the evidence base more appropriate or the way we do the methods we use more appropriate to understand how acupuncture works and what it does. So, so it's an interesting um, tension, if you like, because um, you know a, a evidence-based medicine was never designed with um, East Asian medicine in mind, and has a quite sort of hard scientific dimension to it. But within it, there's also opportunities to be creative. I think that's where I work. Great. Now, both of you have brought up terms um, in the course of, this is really interesting, in the course of describing your own engagement with this field, broadly writ, that also speaks specifically to the concerns of the project and the volume that resulted from the project. In particular, um, you've mentioned uh, translation, authenticity, evidence, practice, and a concern with results. And all of these um, sort of recur in various ways as some major themes of the project, and um, it'll, be, it'll be great to talk with you both about them over the course of our conversation. Now, now that we know a little bit about um, what brought you both to the field, let's talk about uh, the genesis of this project in particular. Now, you say um, at the beginning of the volume, and it's an edited volume, and for listeners, I'll say also, it's a particularly coherent edited volume. I mean, this is rare. Um, As someone who's read a lot of edited volumes um, in my um, early uh, career here, this is um, notable for being remarkably coherent. There are um, very clear and very clean set of themes that weave through, and this is clearly the product of a long and sustained engagement among the authors and contributors and not just a one-off conference. Now, you, you say that the book originated in um, two workshops and um, many more collaborations beyond that over three years. Can you talk a little bit about the process of moving from these workshops and these um, collaborative activities to the volume itself? How did you manage that? How was that, um, how was that orchestrated? Oh, maybe... One. Yeah, maybe we should go back even one step further and uh, talk a little bit about you and me working together, because that goes back a little bit earlier. And I think it's really it's really out of uh, partly out of the collaboration with uh, you and myself, 
that that finally led to this volume. Uh, when when you were still um, running a school in 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 York in the north of England, um, he he invited me up a few times to. Um, I, I I had just started as a as a kind of humanities scholar, <laughs> and uh, you you was one of the first people who gave me an opportunity to. Uh, to get an audience amongst practitioners for, for these kind of humanities concerns. And, um, and even so, we come to this topic from different angles. You, as he explained before, as a more from, from the natural scientist angle, and I'm more from the, from the medical humanities angle. Um, we, we, we always found that we could work very well together and, and, and bring something to the table collectively, Uh, that I think went beyond what we could do individually, uh, specifically also with uh, you know with with practitioners and and um, academics in mind, and out of that uh, then um, emerged this uh, uh, this project, which which was aimed at uh, you know in in a way for the first time bringing together uh, in in a in 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 the. F Through, through a number of workshops, um, medical humanities people, um, social scientists with uh, practitioners and, and epidemiologists and um, clinical researchers, initially just to see um, you know, whether, we could, whether we could actually just talk to each other and find a, a forum uh, for discussion. And that was, was done at a conference we did in London in 2007. We had about uh, 35 people there uh, over three days, um, and I think it worked out um, very well. Uh, can, I, can I chip in on that one? Yeah, sure. Just, uh, I think one of the innovations of that, that workshop that, I, that was remarkably successful was asking people to, to come to the workshop preparing to talk about um, a paper that had been written by one of the people from the other side, if you like, of the bridge. Mm -hmm. So the natural scientist had to speak to a social science paper and the social scientist had to speak to a, a natural sciences paper. And I think in terms of our learning and building bridges, I think that workshop was quite a remarkable event. That's a great idea. I mean, did you find that um, that activity Work, uh, clearly you think it worked really well, but what were some of the challenges in that? And did you ask participants to do that at the second conference as well? Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges is that uh, different academic communities, of course, speak different languages, <laughs> and very different languages, and have, have very different concerns, and also... Uh, they draw on very different resources, you know. So if you, you know, if you mention Foucault, say as an example, <laughs> there's nobody in the humanities who wouldn't know that name. <laughs> but but to many people in you know, clinical researchers, uh, they they either don't know him or or, or might even think uh, it's somebody not to read. Yes. <laughs> um, but but I think one of the the differences in to me at least, and and this of course my subjective view. But I think one of the special things about East Asian medicine, both both in a positive and in a sometimes negative sense, is very marginal. So it's a very marginal field, and that's continuously struggling in various ways to um, to stay alive or to make itself relevant. Uh, while at the same time, and, and or, or, or because of that, the people who work in it 
um, are often very dynamic people who are, have a, who, who, who are prepared to uh, you know, step a little bit um, outside the conventional way to do things. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that is one of the things that really helps. Don't you think, you? I would agree. I would agree. And um, so, so I think it was partly um, the way we set it up, as you already explained, and also the people who came and uh, and the you know personal dynamics that uh, emerged uh, among this group of people, and and then I think uh, moving on from the first conference to the second conference, um, I think that's really use uh, achievement of, uh, of 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 creating a format uh, in which we would move from the first conference, which was really mainly establishing a platform and, 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 and seeing that it actually worked. But moving from there to the book, uh, I think that was helped by you having done something similar before in a different field. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could explain that, you. Yeah, I, I, I think the second conference, we specifically invited people to come with writing a chapter for the book in mind. Mm-hmm. Whereas at the first conference, it was more exploratory. The second conference was more focused with an out- output, i.e. this book, and so the people who came then had had you know had essentially signed up to produce a chapter, and one of our goals at the at the, the second workshop then was to um, move beyond just people presenting papers from the other side, if you like, but to people actually working together on individual chapters as a team, as a group, trying to get more engagement. In other words, um, to some extent, we were less successful in terms of final outputs. But I think the workshop itself worked very well because we had lots of small groups, we had lots of dialogue across across the, the different um, uh, divisions that that actually, you know, when, once one started to talk, one realized actually there was quite a lot of common ground. There were important things we could learn from each other, and we felt I think the workshop felt very exciting. And then after the workshop, the next phase then was um, get, setting to to write the, the chapters um, in the small groups. Uh, and as I said, the, not all of the groups continued past the workshop. Um, uh, some of them did. Maybe, maybe you should make more clear. In, initially, we, we conceived uh, each chapter to be written by a group of people oh. and actually bring in the writing of the chapters, you know, humanities and, uh, and uh, natural science and practitioner perspectives into each individual chapter. And that didn't work so well because I think there the gap is perhaps too big. <laughs> so in the end, as you see from the book, a lot of the chapters are authored by individual individuals uh, with an introduction. Um, but then what we try to do to still make it more collective in a sense and also bring into each chapter um, both practice perspectives and um and help other people, uh, you know, al- allow other people to have a voice. Uh, we have a series of vignettes mm-hmm. uh, in, in each of the chapters between, you know, one and three mm-hmm. uh, vignettes that speak to concrete themes that come up in the chapter and elucidate them with a kind of like a case study, as you, as you might call them. I was actually going to mention that I, when you um, were talking about the sort of genesis of this in an effort to create 
this dialogue that was going to produce each one of the chapters, I think the vignettes work really well to do that. It really does give a sense in each of the chapters. And, and for listeners, um, as Volker just said, there are several vignettes um, throughout the book. And each of the chapters, I think, um, if, I'm, if I'm not remembering incorrectly, has at least one of these. And these these vignettes are everything from um, discussions of what um, healthcare practice looks like in a particular locality to a kind of quick and dirty um, recap of an argument of a major STS text like uh, Dastin and Gallison's Objectivity to um, a discussion of the importance of case studies to um, Chinese medicine in particular. And so it really does give the sense of a reading experience that's very much um, reading and participating in a dialogue um, and I, that I think actually um, works really well for this volume. And so I'd love to see more volumes like this that incorporate that structure. So um, as we sort of uh, move into the volume itself then, um, there, as you mentioned, there are, and I don't know how much um, as a reader, these common themes and these major threads come from or reproduce the ones that were um, emergent from the conference, but certainly in the volume, there are some major threads that tie these chapters together, and they tie the chapters together in four parts. And so very quickly, um, part one focuses on practices and practitioners of East Asian medicine. Part two focuses on um, ideas and practices of standardization. Part three focuses on clinical research um, in East Asian medicine and efforts to build an evidence base and to talk about what evidence means and can mean and might mean and should mean in this context. And then part four um, moves us out into the theme of globalization of traditional medicines and their integration into official healthcare systems and the sort of the, the place of biomedicine within that integration and negotiation. Okay, so um, these are all extraordinarily important um, themes, and let's get to as many of them as we can. So sort of moving into... Um, the first part, this is a part um, of the book that is on practices and practitioners of East Asian medicine. Um, it, one of the um, chapters in here is by Volker, and one of the sort of major themes in this piece, and this is a theme that recurs throughout the book itself, um, is the tension between um, thinking in terms of best practices or best practitioners. Um, in thinking about these themes. So can um, Fulker and Hugh, um, can you uh, speak to that a little bit? What, can, let's, let's talk a little bit about this tension between best practices and best practitioners. What does that mean and how does that shape um, the concerns of the volume? Um, do you want to talk first, you and then? Uh, I follow you, Volker. This is okay. you headed up. Okay. I mean, obviously, if you, if you, if you would speak to... So in any Chinese medicine practitioner at the moment, uh, what, what Chinese medicine is good at, they would tell you that it's about individualized treatment. And part of the individualized approach is also um, that, that each doctor has um, their own particular way of doing things. So there's this uh, very famous, it's, it's by now a... Uh, kind of like almost a stereotype, a story that gets repeated again and again, that if you go to 10 different practitioners, you end up uh, with 10 different treatments and each of them might or might not work. <laughs> so this is, of course, very different to uh, to the kind of like stereotypical approach 
uh, that, that we associate with kind of modern biomedicine, where you treat not the person but the illness, and in particular with the kind of uh, evidence-based practice that often tend or um, yeah, where best practice um, has, has as a goal, um, and again, that's kind of like um, in, in the in the worst case scenario to uh, to treat each uh, illness along uh, kind of like a predefined um, predefined uh, protocol, rather than taking into account the diversity of uh, people and uh, manifestations of illnesses. So that's really the theme, yes? Um, so if you then talk about uh, integrating East Asian medicines into uh, contemporary healthcare, that immediately then sets up this tension um, to think about, you know, how can you, how, how can you integrate something that's totally different into, you know, into something that's totally different. And, um, and obviously, if you if you look at the discussions that tend to take place, uh, they tend to evolve along a number of of of, of you know lines of argument. Uh, the first argument, of course, is that um, you know the, the the twain shall never meet, and you have to keep them totally apart. And uh, people would. Um, Mobilize a number of different resources uh, uh, to to legitimize that. And uh, Thomas Kuhn, uh, whom, whom can you get? Uh, sorry, I'm having a lot of. Um, There's a little bit of feedback. Um, yes. If somebody has their volume on and doesn't have headphones in, sometimes that can create it. Okay, I haven't got a headphone, but um, okay. maybe I need a headphone. Um, I keep talking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, so Thomas Kuhn, for instance, is a per, is, is is a place where science studies or the philosophy of science or the history of science enters um, into the arguments that Chinese medicine practitioners, in particular, construct to um, to say that their practice is um, totally different and should be kept totally apart, mm -hmm. which is, of course, not what happens in real life. Uh, it, it always gets contaminated. And then on the other side of the uh, uh, divide, you have the biomedical um, kind of extreme uh, voices of uh, biomedical imperialism, you could call it, who say that, um, you know, this is a, an outdated uh, traditional practice, potentially unsafe uh, and certainly not proven to be clinically effective. And therefore it should be... Um, you know, forbidden or discontinued. Um, but as, but, 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 you know, as, uh, as you can show from, um, you know, through, through, through the anthropological work that has been carried out over, over the last 20 years, perhaps, um, there, there's always contact. Even the people who say they, you know, practitioners who say they're not using biomedicine, in some way they're always using biomedicine. And they have to, uh, whether they like it or not, work in a context that is, um, Shaped by uh, biomedicine or by by uh, other cultural um, practices that are not Chinese or that don't come from the Han Dynasty, so I think it's really important to bring that out into the open and uh, and reflect about it. And for me personally, the challenge is that um, 
how how can you find a language that speaks at the same time to um, practitioner concerns and to science studies <laughs> concerns? Because what's as I said before, sometimes if you if you draw on um, ways of thinking about uh, these kind of problems from the science studies and bring them across to practitioners, then it becomes all for them too theoretical, too complicated, uh, too detached from their real concerns. Whereas on the other hand, uh, practitioners often lack, because that's not what they do, they then might lack the tools to kind of, the critical tools to reflect about it. And this chapter is a kind of uh, attempt uh, to create some kind of language um, using some some tools from uh, the medical humanities to enable practitioners to think about that, but also to find a way of thinking about it that doesn't create a priori divisions, yes? So that speaks, that that allows us to... um, give a place to different practices, both to the best practitioners and to best practices, and look at what kind of social contexts uh, tend to generate a focus on best practices and what other social contexts and, and, and clinical contexts uh, tend to produce a focus on best practitioners. And that's really the, the starting point for that discussion. Um, now, one of the things that comes up a lot, just to sort of follow through this theme a little bit, you've mentioned um, Kuhn, right? And perhaps the, engaging the idea of incommensurability as something yes. that you're sort of working against. And we've also, or I mentioned earlier, um, the importance of uh, Dastin and Gallison's book on objectivity recurs a lot throughout the volume as a touchstone. Um, C.P. Snow's Two Cultures is also something that you bring up explicitly um, or that, that is brought up um, explicitly, I think, in the intro. It, it's clear that um, there's a sense that the study and practice of East Asian medicines can learn from the discourses and themes and questions and resources of STS. What do you think that STS can learn from East Asian medicines or the, the study and practice of the engagement with East Asian medicines? Um. I think, obviously, I work in in a kind of, uh, in in the field of East Asian medicine. So what I think it can bring to it is uh, an acceptance of these, uh, these, well, let's let's take one step back. I think STS practitioners are also, um, you know, defined by the cultural context in which they operate. Mm-hmm. And to most STS people that I know, Chinese medicine is also something very strange. Mm-hmm. And for them to accept that, so if they have to go to a doctor, <laughs> uh, maybe Chinese medicine is also not the first choice. Um, accepting something like East Asian medicine as something really real, on the same level that biomedicine is real, I don't know whether most STS people be prepared to do that. Uh, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. As a real practice, not just something to think about, but actually do and, and, and use. 
and uh, so therefore engaging with something like that as a, as a, as something that is really different and and I could explain to you on, on many different levels but there I think there are some real differences uh, even if, so they can also be found uh, elsewhere I think that's a real uh, that's a real challenge for STS so what you're mentioning um, brings up another important theme that also threads throughout the book, and it's it's a theme that's come up or a term that's come up in our conversation so far um, that, that I'd love to hear from both of you about, and this is the term evidence-based medicine. Now, this is something that's very important to the, um, the questions and the concerns of the book, but it may not be something that all of our listeners are familiar with, certainly not in that... Um, that form of discourse. So can um, the two of you talk a little bit about evidence-based medicine? Sort of what is it? Why is it so important to these themes? And, and I mentioned that also in, um, uh, as a segue from talking about the connection between STS and East Asian medicines, because one of the things that comes up in the book is the concern that um, evidence-based medicine is permeated by what you call um, a positivist, or by what's called in the book a, a positivist philosophy, which seems to speak to this idea of um, the problem perhaps convincing scholars in some disciplines that there are multiple forms of truth um, that might be um, operating at any given time. So evidence-based medicine, what is it? Why is it important to the themes of the book? Maybe you can talk about that, you. Well, uh, I think evidence-based medicine was conceived uh, as a way of resolving a lot of the dilemmas that were, were out there in medicine about what works and what doesn't work. And what often happened in practice was that the sort of treatment you might get would depend very much on the preference of your consultant, your specialist, or your doctor, um, rather than anything based on whether something actually worked or not. So this was a, like a rational endeavor to try and sort out the, the, the interventions that work from the interventions that don't. And alongside that, you know, what's cost-effective and what's not, and so forth. And trying to get a, a, a way of getting to some uh, essential facts about uh, whether things work or not in clinically. So that's, that's the theory, and, that's that, and that in many ways that's a, a useful endeavor because uh, you know, it's, it's a, a rational basis for, for allocating resources, for making the clinical decisions, and so forth. But when the people who conceived evidence-based medicine, I don't think had any idea quite how the field would develop because it, when conceived, it, the idea was also that that the external evidence what, that one would get from trials and so forth should be factored in with the clinical decision-making that the, you know, the individual doctor makes a decision for individual patients. But what's happened with evidence-based medicine is it's, it's got a life of its own, if you like, and through generating systematic reviews, it's making judgments about treatments uh, for, for, for conditions that are very general. And, and uh, there's a huge industry now developing these reviews. The Cochrane Collaboration is part of that, and there are other, other related endeavors that all are about trying to develop a very um, structural scientific basis for, for decision-making that's based on a huge amount of averaging. And so what gets lost then is, is the individualization that we, you know, that is a feature that we've covered in the book. Uh, what gets lost is um, the complexity of people, uh, individuals and their conditions and the settings they're in and so forth. All of those are ironed out with evidence-based medicine. So I think where Volker and I share a concern is that somehow we want to 
to, to uh, create a bit more of a balanced view about evidence-based medicine, one that goes beyond these this overly rational averaging process to one that where we can see evidence-based medicine maybe being better adapted to the context of, of East Asian medicine where um, things are more complex, where, think, where there's a, um, a tradition that um, can inform practice in a way that actually has an influence on what things might and how things might be done that that needs a more sophisticated and nuanced approach to evidence-based medicine. Well, what, what, Perhaps you should pick, pick up yeah. the, the, the points there. Maybe I come back to one of the questions you asked me earlier, Carla. And um, it, it, as, as you also just um, explained, uh, evidence-based medicine is in a certain way something quite young. Uh, it's, it only developed, uh, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago, but since has conquered uh, not only biomedicine, but is conquering uh, territories like uh, East Asian medicine or, or, or nursing, uh, things like that. Um, but but it's, so, so it's a, it has a history. And this history tends to get forgotten by the practitioners in the same way that sometimes the history of medicine in China or the medicine of, of East Asia gets forgotten, forgotten by its practitioners. So I think something that um, historians and uh, SDS people can bring to both of them is that kind of historical perspective that shows us why certain things take place uh, at certain times in the way they do. Um, but then on the other hand, if you look at... Um, you know, you know, some of some the writings that um, anthropologists or SDS scholars have produced on subjects like S like evidence-based medicine, which is, of course, uh, also interesting to them. Um, then you find there often a kind of um, implicit antagonism um, because evidence-based medicine is in a certain way tied to a a certain type of reductionism in thinking about the world, um, which goes against the, the, the more natural perspective that a humanities scholar would have, you get then there in a certain antagonism, and evidence-based medicine is perceived as almost like the enemy or something that has to be criticized, uh, which goes then links to the kind of science Yes, played out in the field of uh, complementary alternative medicine. And again, I think then uh, people like you can help us to, um, to see uh, what, what, what might be the advantages of a perspective like that and how by talking to each other and bridging that gap, we can arrive at... Uh, Arrive at understandings that both um, intellectually satisfying, but that also can be translated into some concrete practice. And both you and me are practitioners, so on a certain level for us, it's also important to not just to create knowledge, but to create knowledge that changes something on the ground. Um, I think that's another important dimension. Uh, that has informed us in, in, in producing that book, which we imagine to be, um, hopefully, <laughs> be, be something that will, you know, through 
through the way it discusses and, and through the way it throws open the field, um, will, will at least lead to uh, the possibility of that change taking place on the ground. So, so some sort of dialogue between a more social science perspective and a natural science perspective in the context of evidence-based medicine might mean we can do better research, research that actually people from from many other many from broader perspectives can say yes i like that research it fits it works for me and it is more difficult to do this because it's no longer running running along the sort of tram lines of what evidence-based medicine might expect but on the other hand the sort of the what comes out of that will be more useful for practitioners and will be more useful for the field generally in terms of the fact that it will be um you know, respecting the, the the principles and the tradition and so forth, and taking that into account. Um, so one can one can do more sophisticated research within the rubric of of evidence based medicine. And there are you know quite a few pointers and innovative projects and ideas and things that are being developed along those lines that you know we've highlighted in in the book. Mm-hmm. I think one of the concrete ways that. Um, this that this book in particular, and that um, some of the chapters, especially, um, um, really speak really to speak a to very important and popular theme right now emerging in the field of STS, yeah. um, and that is circulation um, of knowledge, right? And the sort of the local and transnational and translational construction of knowledge across localities. And so, there's a part of the book, part four that focuses on the sort of globalization of trans of uh, traditional medicines that really looks specifically at local practices in the Philippines, in India, in Cuba, and gives very particular, very specific case studies that I think um, speak very deeply to the kind of work being done by um, historians in particular working on STS that are trying to move to a more global and globally informed discourse about the sciences and a more plural vision for what the history of science um, and medicine and technology might look like. So in that area in particular, it's very clear to me to see how um, chapters on um, uh, sort of ideas of integration of healthcare in the Philippines, a chapter on... Um, uh, sort of spa culture and the sort of the importance of branding for invented traditions of therapeutic practices in an Indian spa, and then a chapter on the historical development of Chinese medicine in Cuba and the ways that local conditions of revolution and local herbs in Cuba actually produce a very particular local kind of Chinese medicine. It's very clear to me to see how that informs um, a discourse in STS, for example, that's concerned with the circulation and translocal production of knowledge. In what ways, um, and here's a question for you, because um, I think very clearly, and, and you just mentioned that one of the important goals of uh, this volume is to also um, have concrete effects in practice, right? To sort of really um, inform the practice of uh, East Asian medicines and integrated um, medicine, uh, medical sort of practices in different localities, but also policies toward this. How might understanding the production of tradi- what we might call traditional and scare quotes medicines as translocal? As global, as produced um, by negotiation of different kinds of practices, how might that inform practice? 
So do you see the, like now that we know, or I, yeah, yeah. I'm very comfortable in, in saying that that's going to speak to STS, but how does that inform the other um, dimension of the kinds of communities that you're hoping that this book will, will speak to and help um, produce new practices within? Well, well, I think um, with, within the field of uh, East Asian medicine, um, I mean, if you, if you go back 20 years, um, it, was, it was pretty much accepted that there was only one Chinese medicine. Um, and whereas now what is happening, that is pretty... And, and I think that is through um, the work of uh, medical historians and humanities scholars who have shown us that the practice of Chinese medicine in China has been historically diverse. And that is by now accepted within the Chinese medicine practitioner community. And that is slowly starting to affect both the self-understanding and I think it's also affecting um, teaching uh, in the sense that uh, colleges would not teach just one way of doing things, but at least help, help their students to gain a, a broader perspective. And I think what might happen as a next step is to see that it's not just historically diverse, but it's also diverse, as you say, in the circulation across different territories and to different places. And once that becomes accepted, then obviously becomes an issue to think as a process is taking place anyway, how should we shape that process? So we're not just passive recipients of something that gets moved from China to over here. And if you look at Mei Chan's book on the worlding of Chinese medicine, as an example, um, who, who also has contributed a vignette to that book, um, or if you, th th those are the beginnings uh, of, of opening that space. And I think... Um, Obviously, we, our, our book is a, is a first attempt to, to really raise that question, not in a theoretical way, but in a very practical way. As these things move, what, what should we do? What is our responsibility to uh, get involved in this process of, uh, of movement and transformation? Mm -hmm. Now, one of the... Um, the other uh, really interesting really? issues that come up here, and this yeah. is in particular, I'm looking yeah. at chapter two, um, Fulton's uh, chapter on defining best practice or cultivating best practitioners. One of the really interesting tools that you in invoke here as a way to think through um, how to integrate biomedicine and traditional medicines through this kind of interdisciplinary dialogue that you've, um, I think, very effectively and very successfully been um, suggesting and and also manifesting and embodying in this volume. Um, so one of the ways to do this is by using what, what, um, what I can, forgive me if I'm getting this, um, perhaps if I'm not um, being totally accurate in this, but what I, I'm reading is systems theory. Is that right? Um, so the idea of um, the body as a system, and you mentioned systems theory and the sort of models from um, perhaps organizational studies and other, 
kind of mo basically models from outside, um, even the humanities um, in particular, and outside the practice of East Asian medicine that help us think about systems, components of systems, features of systems, and how to um, perhaps uh, sort of extract from that models, for example, the, the Kinefin model, um, I think you mentioned for thinking about how different modes of understanding um, problems and objects might be negotiated with each other. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that? And, and I forgive me if I'm not yeah. characterizing this totally um, accurately here. But you no, it, <laughs> no, I think that's a, that's a reasonably okay definition. I mean, my, no, the, the problem for me was to find some way of thinking about this that would, as I said before, that would be acceptable to people outside of SDS or medical humanities. Um, Yet I think those SDS perspective, they, they, can, they can do that meter level of discussion that is important for the practitioners or, or, the, or the stakeholders in this process of uh, transformation and, uh, and, and translocation. So the model I used here is, um, is in a certain level, you would, might say it's a bit simplistic, but at least I thought it allows us a space to... Um, Put everything on a level playing field, yes, to to close the, you know, that gap between the modern and the traditional and um, the past and the present uh, by looking at things through, you know, what you call systems. Um, but actually, it comes from a, um, a model from um, British uh, anthropology um, originally, <laughs> and then was taken up by. Uh, by Dave Snowden and uh, Cynthia Kurtz, who used this um, model by Mary Douglas, um, transferred it into organizational management. Um, and I encountered it there. Uh, they actually used it to um, help IBM to think about the culture of their own organization. Um, but what the, the model is simplistic, but what it, I think it allows us to do is really tie together how practices and contexts of practice mutually shape each other. And because I think we need some kind of model that steps back, even, even as it's important to understand how everything develops in its specific context, but also I think it's very useful to have another way of stepping back from it and allow us to look at what's similar and uh, actually the same across contexts. Mm -hmm. uh, because if we're too narrowly focused, then we can't compare, obviously. Yeah? Uh, so we have to step back and find a way of uh, looking what's similar. And what I try to do is show, for instance, that certain types of biomedical practice also look towards the best practitioner. Um, GP practice uh, originally was also about cultivating the best practitioners. Mm -hmm. uh, and that has really been reshaped by evidence-based medicine over the consciously being reshaped. Because one of the impetus, as you explained before, behind developing the evidence-based framework was to get away from the subjectivity uh, that people were discovering and being horrified by was endemic within uh, biomedical practice. 
so so it's also a kind of way of rooting out that subjectivity. Whereas I think what Chinese medicine has historically done is find tools to cultivate subjectivity as a way of solving problems. Um, so then if you apply evidence-based medicine to Chinese medicine, then it kind of transforms Chinese medicine in a very similar way. Um, and the agenda is not all that different to biomedicine. So what we can then do, we can look at a process that seems to be very different, but it's actually on a certain level the same. So that's been really the, um, the motivation behind finding what you call the systems uh, level perspective. And another um, perspective that really seems to motivate um, really um, wonderfully yeah. uh, some uh, of the action here in the book is, as you, as you mentioned before, you alluded to a perspective, a perspective from history um, that um, might, as you are suggesting, better inform how we look how at practice. Now, this comes up specifically um, in, in many ways, one of which is the invocation of the importance of cases and case records to Chinese medicine. But another one comes up in a, in a vignette um, that was early in the book about a menopause project um, that Volker uh, mentions um, being involved in and, and sort of, I, I, I gather that that's ongoing. Um, uh, which really which seemed to be a very fascinating different. case in which thinking critically about, about categories, categories of illness, categories of uh, medical treatment as emerging um, in historical time in different, very particular contexts, really seems to um, directly inform and shape the way practitioners might think about treating and, and engaging with patients who are... Un, um, sort of experiencing um, different sorts of phenomena in their bodies. So um, could you talk a little bit about this menopause project? Because this is, a, a frankly, a particularly fascinating case study that comes out of the book. Um, that's, of course, a whole, whole big different project. Um, that's very difficult to squeeze into two minutes here. But basically, it's another way of how... I personally try to bridge that gap between uh, in in a, in a in a concrete context. So instead of thinking, you know, what a normal um, evidence-based medicine program would do, it would assume that Chinese medicine has a way of treating menopause, and then we put it through the evidence-based machine. We put we do a few trials, and then either it works or it doesn't work. Um, whereas a lot of Chinese medicine practitioners would say, well, as I said before, well, everybody practices differently, so it cannot be evaluated, um, which then makes translation into at least uh, insurance-based programs very difficult um, because they require um, nowadays evidence-based um, criteria for, 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 for allowing certain practices. So what we try to do is um, problematize this whole process of how, gets, how Chinese medicine gets linked to a disease or a problem, uh, menopause, which you know, only gets, uh, gets constructed even in Western medicine at the end of the 19th century which enters China via Japan sometimes in the early 20th century, which doesn't get really connected to Chinese medicine until the 
1950s, 1960s, but yet nowadays claims to have 2,000 years of experience in treating it. So once you unpack that historically, once you show that that interface didn't develop 2,000 years ago in some kind of uh, mythological time of the work of the laboring masses or whatever matter, whatever other story you want to tell yourself, but it was constructed at a certain place, a certain time, in a certain way, um, and it raises, um, th then it opens up this, you know, if you want to use another STS term, Doris, <laughs> of, uh, of this articulation. And if you realize that what is really that there's not one Chinese medicine treatment for menopause, but there's a complex articulation of knowledge, technologies, illness concepts, cultures, etc., then of course you can re-engineer these articulations, or you ought to re-engineer these articulations to make you know, better or different ones. Um, and that is really a way of how, I think, how you can... That also articulate humanities and uh, and clinical research and clinical practice because they all have something to contribute to this process of articulation, and and that takes us back to the the theme of the book that we discussed in the beginning. So what what will be interesting is how these articulations, these you know explanations at a deeper level of um, how Chinese medicine is practiced or could be practiced, how this hopefully will start to inform people who practice the evidence-based medicine approaches to, to research and uh, no longer seeing Chinese medicine in an overly simplified way uh, or making assumptions that, oh, well, you know, Chinese medicines um, can easily be, you know, studied in a trial because we can standardize um, what's being done. I think Volker's work with menopause really nicely illustrates how by taking just one uh, condition, menopause, and taking a really deep look at how, how it's been practiced in the past and how it can be practiced better now can really inform better research and therefore better evidence. Uh, and that also hopefully will feed back into better practice or better practitioners um, in the future. Well, there's a ton of other material in the book um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but um, in, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time um, for both of you. Is there anything in the book, um, in, in any of the chapters, or really about the project writ bro or broadly writ, writ large, um, that, you, that we haven't had a chance to speak to, but that you'd like to mention, um, either or both of you, for the purpose of, or for the sake of listeners who may not yet have had the chance to read the book? You want to say something, you? Um, not nothing springs to mind. I'll, I'll I'll keep thinking if you have something to go. Well, well, I basically would like to take that opportunity to thank all the other contributors <laughs> because you know, even so, it's been the two of us talking here. It's really been a project that had input by many, many different people, um, and I'm really very grateful to all of them uh, for for really sticking with it, uh, something that was quite experimental, but that I hope um, people will find stimulating and will see as a, maybe as a way for doing these kind of co cooperations or working together 
it could happen in other disciplines as well. It doesn't have to be limited to uh, Chinese or East Asian medicine. And, um, and now that now this project is wrapped up and um, the volume's out, what's on the horizon for um, the two of you? What are you each working on now? You want to go ahead, you? Um, well, I, I have a big research agenda already going on at the University of York. Uh, I've been well-funded to, to explore a number of um, areas. And, and so what I'm trying to do is, is continue this uh, process, if you like, of teasing out the complexities of what really happens in practice and uh, helping develop evidence that really fits what happens rather than um, is like a sort of a, a straitjacket on, on the process. And so there's many papers um, and studies that I'm involved in that will be um, coming out in, in the next couple of years that will hopefully you know, develop the evidence in a, in a, in a pro more appropriate way than sometimes has been done in the past. Um, and I, I have been following in Yu's footsteps in some ways. Uh, he, um, I also have been very lucky in getting uh, some, some rather large grants that allow me to uh, to do my work. And um, what I, I'm doing is um, you know, moving on from menopause, uh, looking at some other conditions like uh, the articulation between Chinese medicine and uh, depression, for instance. Um, and I'm also very much interested uh, or what I will do over the next few years is um, I really want to work uh, in, in, in making East Asian medicine a topic within the medical humanities and STS because I think it, um, it, it's such a rich field um, and an un unexplored field and it can help us to, um, you know, to reflect it, it, STS can help us to think through East Asian medicine, but I think East Asian medicine, because it doesn't come from where we think science comes from, yet it's a global phenomenon, and it's articulating with science in very, in very often surprising and uh, extremely interesting ways that change all the time. So for one of the things I'm also very interested in is the articulation between, you know, almost the most cutting edge way of doing biomedicine, uh, systems biology, uh, and East Asian medicine. That's a field that has been kind of like emerging only in the last five to ten years, where, where biomedical scientists looking to East Asian medicine not just as a something to be exploited or mined for resources, but actually where they think there might be a way of thinking about the whole problem of illness that is, um, you know, matching their own uh, cutting-edge uh, ways to reconfigure the field. So that's a very, very, very interesting uh, place. Uh, that I would want to investigate, and then I also want to go back in time. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm I'm doing too many things, but uh, uh, but but the whole thing that I'm doing is looking at these different articulations, as you might speak, yes, and looking at them in different places in different times. 
Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with us today about this volume. It's great. It's super helpful. And um, this has been a lot of fun. So thank you so much. And we'll look forward to talking with you again about your next projects. Okay. Thanks, Carla, for giving us this space and uh, for your time. You've been listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.